You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Disha Filia, whose debut short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, won the 2021 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, the 2020 and 2021 Story Prize, and the 2020 LA Times Book Prize, and was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. In addition to winning all the awards, the collection, which focuses on Black women, sex, and the Black church, is being adapted for television by HBO Max. Disha is also a Kimbilio Fiction Fellow and will be the 2022-23 John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi. When we spoke, Disha and I discussed what her life might have been like if, after catching the man she'd just started dating in a devastating lie, she had walked away instead of staying with and ultimately marrying him. Along the way, we discussed the shame that exists around loneliness, the importance of small surprises, and some handy tips for spotting dating app red flags. Hi, Deisha. Hi, Miriam. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm really, really pleased to have you. And not just because I, like many (laughs) others on both sides of the pond, am in love with your short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Um, And I I just... Oh, you're welcome. I, I just it's the it's the opening page of Peach Cobbler, which I'm not going to. <laughs> That's one of my favorite first lines, too. <laughs> it's just brilliant. I just kept going over it and going, how did she do that? <laughs> so so it's I, I, I'm really excited to have you on here for that. And also because. Um, as a short story writer, one thing that you've said is that you consider um, short stories to be a kind of opportunity for a do-over, which I obviously really like because I feel like we traffic in do-overs here yes. on My Unlived Life. <laughs> so I was just, for, before we get into yours, would you just say a little bit of something about that? What does that mean to you? It's an opportunity to explore either something from my life or something from some other aspect of life and you know, explore how it could have been and what some other possibilities might be. And, or if there's something I didn't get to experience, I can experience it on the page through my characters. I love that. How, how long have you been writing? Have you I always started, written? No, I started writing, um, I keep saying 20 years, but it's been a little over 20 years ago. Um, I was, it would have been in my uh, late twenties, early thirties. And what got you into it? 
uh, I was. It started as just a form of escape from being a stay-at-home mom of a toddler who did not nap. And so <laughs> for 30 minutes a day, <laughs> I would go into my uh, study and and try to write stories. Try to. Try, I was actually trying to write a novel, and um, and my daughter would be on the other side of the door screaming and crying, and I'd be typing and crying. <laughs> so that's how it started <laughs> with tears. It started with tears. I think it often, I think many phases of the writing process often involve tears, yes. unfortunately. <laughs> I also, I love that idea is that so many people, I think, um, whether or not they want to admit it, sort of feel they need to escape their children in order to write. So yes. I love that writing was the escape. And we need to talk more about that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think so many creative people really struggle with balancing what is sort of expected of us as mothers and, and what mm -hmm. you need in terms of solitude and time to yourself. Absolutely. I think we have quite a sort of meaty unlived life for you and I'm really eager yeah. to get get right into it. So what's useful, I think you, the path that we're going to explore for you uh, starts in 2006. And I think what would be really nice, really helpful is if we got a little bit of a runway going. So if you sure. can tell us, um, because you're going to talk about your second marriage um, in your unlived life. And I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of context, maybe even starting uh, with a bit around your first marriage and then, and then take us up to 2006, if you can. I met my first husband in college um, and our first date was my 18th birthday. So that's just how long we had been together. <laughs> and, um, and we were together through college and then um, got engaged right after college, got married a year after graduation. And so at that point, we're in the early mid 90s. And, um, and, you know, I always say we kind of raised each other in that marriage, because we were both still kids, you know, and we brought up all of our, you know, family of origin baggage with us and all of our fears and insecurities. And we still had a lot of growing up to do. Um, and we weren't, entirely compatible that, you know, I think that's, you know, that's such a huge thing. That's one of the biggest lessons that I took away from that marriage. I took away many lessons, but the combat, the importance of compatibility, which sounds like a no brainer, you know? Um, but, I, you know, looking back, I know that I jumped into that relationship and into that marriage, despite the fact that we weren't compatible because I thought I won the lottery. You know, I was the daughter of a single mom who had been the daughter of a single mom. And, um, and so marriage was, you know, like the, the Willy Wonka golden <laughs> ticket, you know, <laughs> and, and not just any marriage, but, you know, my, um, my first husband, my now co-parent is just a great person, just salt mm. of the earth. And, um, and so I really thought, wow, I'm going to be spared all that bullshit that women have to deal with because I'm going to lock into to this marriage with this good man that feels like that feels like the most the, that kind of like lethal thought you know that sort of really yes. sort of like and then reader five years later <laughs> but you know with him as I tried to articulate it at the time that somebody can be a good person you know he's a good man I'm a good woman we just weren't good together or good for each other mm. um and so that's kind of the end of that you know how that marriage you know fell apart eventually um you know, in a nutshell. And so we separated in 2005. Let me, 2005 was a monster of a year. So January, 2005, my grandmother, who along with my mother raised me, she died. She was in her early eighties. She mm. died of cancer. Um, so that spring, thank you. That spring um, is when my um, 
ex and I, that's when we separated. That summer, um, my mother went into hospice. She had uh, breast cancer. And um, this was not even four years after her diagnosis. And so uh, the last six weeks of her life, I was with her in my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, So she passed away. During that time, she asked me to um, be open to reconciling with my father, who I had been estranged from for many years. Um, and, uh, And he stepped up and he was very supportive of me while I was, you know, there for my mom. And, um... And then, you know, he and I stayed in touch uh, the months after my mom passed and I came back to Pittsburgh. Um, My mother passed in August of that year. And then my father had a a major stroke and died in December of 2005. So that was my 2005. Um, Oh, my goodness. And somehow, (laughs) during all of that, I thought it would be a good idea to try and date. Right. Clearly, I was traumatized. Clearly, I was grieving. Clearly now, you know, not at the time, not so clear. Um, And so I jumped into dating with both feet. It was an absolute clusterfuck. Um, (laughs) And so was the the dating in general was an absolute clusterfuck in terms of the guys you were dating or. Yes. Yeah. And, and, And I don't even really feel like it was considered dating. It was just a lot of being on dating apps and meeting guys who were just ended up being, you know, a fraud or a disappointment in some other way. What were the dating apps in 2005? You know, you could even date through Yahoo in 2005. <laughs> like they had Yahoo had dating, um but it was uh Yahoo Match. Uh I think Plenty of Fish was around. Oh yeah. And then there's something that's still around called Black People Meet. Okay. which is another one. So there were quite a few. Um, and and I'm calling them apps, but I think they were like all websites at that time. But, you know, if you sort of graduated to from the app, from the platform, I should say, then you might do AIM. Remember AIM, AOL Instant Messenger? Yes. Like AIM, AIM was, the, was the place you would go to chat, you know, as you're progressing along. And then, you know, because giving your, someone your phone number was like, you know, a really big deal. And I didn't get past AIM in a lot of, of situations. It was mostly just either something, you know, just dead ends, disappointments. I did have some one night stands. So, you know, there was that. Um, but I should have been grieving. I should have been healing. I should have been doing all these things, but I just kept going and taking care of two young children. Can I just ask really quickly, just about your kids at this stage, how old yeah. were they? So in two 2000- thousand. Five. Let's see. They would have been my youngest would have just turned two um, a few months after my mother died. And then my so then my oldest was seven. Mm. So they were really young. And um, and so and I, you know, tried to be such a present mother for them. And I didn't know how to do the grieving and mothering at the same time. I didn't realize that, like, I could ask for help. But yeah, they were they were young. And at the time, it seemed like they were doing OK. You know, um, we had gone to, you know, family therapy and, and things like that. And um, our co-parenting situation was great. You know, so if there is a such thing as a well, and I know there is there is there are good divorces. So we had a good divorce. It didn't mean that it wasn't hard or there weren't challenges, you know. Kids did have to adjust to listing, li- living between two households. And, um, but 
I don't remember that time. Like my focus was just, are they okay? Are they okay? Are they okay? I wasn't checking in to see, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? You know? I think one thing that becomes a fear, whether or not it's conscious is, you know, if you ask yourself the am I okay question and the answer is no, then what do you do? And you don't have time, especially with kids and work. You don't have time to do anything about it. Yeah. So I was just going, I was just constant motion. Mm. I remember only one day where everything just sort of fell apart and I had a friend come over and help me out. I should have had more days like that, honestly. Yeah. Um, where I just got to nap on the couch and have somebody else come and wash the dishes and pick my kids up and take me to lunch, you know? Um, so, but I, I, I was wise enough at a certain point to take a break from the dating because it just didn't feel good, you know? And I don't remember now, it's been so long, how long the break was. But um, I remember getting back on the apps around the fall, like maybe October, November of, of 2006. I got back on the apps. And the first person that I matched with when I got back on, I ended up marrying him. Ah! Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna need to we're gonna need to know a little bit more about this. Let me just throw a little bit of context, just so I'm sure you're living in Pittsburgh at this point. He lived uh, and lives in Maryland, so this was a long distance thing. So you're mm-hmm. you're in Pittsburgh. Your kids are two and seven, or at this point, closer to three and eight, and they're adjusting. Yeah. You're working. Mm-hmm. Are you? Well, I was. Um, you're writing. I've been you're... freelancing, and so that has always been. A patchwork quilt of writing, editing, teaching, coaching, private clients, nonprofit clients. So I was doing all the things. And that totally contributes to the sort of whirl of kind of grief grief avoidance or feeling like you can't quite engage with that stuff, doesn't it? Yes. Because you're juggling so many things. So, all right. So it's 2006. You've gone back on the apps. You meet meet a guy. He lives in Maryland. You're in Pittsburgh. Um, what, What happens? So I got back on and it was like, really? And so one of the things that struck me about his profile is that he only wanted to date a neighbor. He had like a five mile (laughs) radius, right? (laughs) But there was something in his profile. And this is also a thing that people would do sometimes, which is, hey, I know you're not looking for whatever the thing that kind of disqualifies you. uh, But I really, you know, found your profile to be refreshing. Like I'd have guys send me those kinds of messages and say, oh, thanks. Good luck on your search. And that was the end of it. Mm. And so I said something and I don't remember. I, it was some sort of joke or whatever that I, I that something in his profile just, you know, brought this joke to mind. And I said, hey, I know, you, you know, I'm much more than five miles away from you, but whatever I said. And um, and then he just kept talking to me. Mm-hmm. So the conversation was going great. And then eventually, um, we didn't go to AIM. We went to email. That was exciting, right? <laughs> that feels like a significant step. Yeah, email. Oh, email. And um, <laughs> and so and I remember one day we just emailed each other and communicated in nothing but haiku, the 575 syllables. Yeah, wow. That's impressive. And I... Um, a word nerd. And so the weight of my heart <laughs> is something like that. Who had better haikus? Were you guys like match for match on the haikus? Yeah, I, I remember being very impressed by his. Yeah, I remember being impressed by that. And um, and so at some point, 
the the conversation um, turned to, you know, meeting. He asked me if I would uh, be his date to his company's gala, his the holiday gala. Um, and this was, you know, pre the collapse of the economy. So uh, and he works for he worked at the time he was a contractor for an agency for the federal government. They the this contractor was flush with cash mm. <laughs> and uh, and um, annually they had a big party and uh, with like prize giveaways and they put up all of the employees in a nice hotel for the night so you you know you could drink it was like a swanky thing and um, black tie the whole nine and so that was our first date okay and that is the moment that night if I'm correct is the moment of your path is that right yes okay that's it so okay so tell me about the moment what was the moment so within hours of of me getting there and you know had a great time dancing somebody snapped like a fantastic picture of us dancing. It was it's like a really great photo. What um, were you wearing? But, Tell me about your dress. Oh, I had on this like above the knee dress. It had like a a plunging it was sleeveless and it had a plunging neckline and it had some sort of like very tacky rhinestone thing at the waist. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but it was, but I, I was, I was rocking it. I was rocking of it course. He had on the black tux and he's sort of like, he's not dipping me, but you know, we're dancing and, you know, we're kind of apart enough to take the photo and we're both laughing with like our mouths hanging open. Right? <laughs> it's just, it looks very happy, but maybe the photo was taken before the sort of revelation that I had where instinct kicked in and something told me that, um, something he shared with me that was, was pretty personal and pretty important that I'd rather not get into the specifics here. Um, But the, the the important thing to know is that something told me, and again, I intuition and ancestors, they never let me down. I remembered saying to him, you lied to me about that. And I can't remember if he just said he admitted it right away or his silence, something told me, and I'm not wrong about that. And I was so disappointed, you know, the excitement of the gala and all of this fun and dressing up and everything was shiny. But then there's this lie that sullied, you know, the whole thing. So I was really disappointed. And then I remember getting back to the room and and um, I was in the bed and he was sitting on the floor. And I just remember him talking and talking and talking and trying to excuse away the lie, whatever it was, whatever it was, was not what I needed to hear, Mm. but he was trying to convince me that I should not be upset, which of course became a pattern in our relationship, which is no matter what I do, you should not be upset. It's so insidious that behavior, isn't it? Because it it Mm -hmm. sounds like it's them caring about your feelings, but it's actually the opposite. It's an erasure of your yes, feelings, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. You know, of course I had no insight like that at the time. Mm. And then I remember being sad when I got back on the road the next day and, um, and was driving home. And I don't remember now how we ended up talking on the phone again. And ultimately I made the decision to pursue a relationship with him despite that lie. Mm. And despite the fact that the way he, you know, presented the, you know, (laughs) this to me, was an all or nothing, which is he's not, you know, one, he was not one for dating that we were either in a relationship or we weren't. 
And I have since learned that that's a classic case of, you know, all kinds of dysfunction and red flag, uh, a kind of emotional abuse as well, but also the sign of um, someone who is, you know, deeply insecure. You know, he didn't want to have to prove himself. He didn't want to have to uh, compete with other men. I think it was a fear, and he didn't use that word, of course, but the fear that he might, you know, extend himself and that I might not choose him. And so he was taking all of that off the table. And that's the moment where I should have said, you know, Godspeed, sir, Mm. (laughs) you know, but I did not. And so that is that I entered in, eventually entered in a second marriage that I always say should not have been a second date. Mm. That's such a good way of phrasing it but you are now divorced from this man, correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's so much in what you've just said there. And I want us to, what I really want for you is for us to start to carve your life out in the other direction. Yes. Um, (laughs) I have two questions. The first is just that you said a really beautiful thing, which is intuition and ancestors. They never let you down. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't know if it's for women in particular, but I, I think a lot of people really do struggle with accessing their intuition. And I just, can you just say a little bit more about, about that, what you've just said there? I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but for me, intuition, it's just that little voice Mm. that has always told me exactly what I needed to know. I just haven't always listened. Yeah. It's a voice of caution. It's a voice of reason. It's a, it's a very, you know, it's, you know, it's clear eyed, it's blunt, (laughs) you know, all the things that women are taught not to be, you know? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think that's right. We're certainly not taught to trust our intuition or even to know how to hear it. I think, you know, for some people, it's hard even to hear the voice in the first place. You know, I never thought about it that way. Thank you for pointing that out because I always hear the voice, hmm. but to Where my do you peril, hear it? I like, is it in your head? Is it in your literally, stomach? It's in, it's in my head. It's always in my head. It's, it's a um, sort of a, a feeling of discontent and disease. Um, and sort of a, I don't, I don't like this. It's definitely, you know, inner child stuff. I don't like this. And mm. I know for me, not to take too much of a detour that part of, you know, the early trauma for me in my, my, um, you know, childhood was having a father who was, you know, physic not, well, physically not present, but emotionally absent, emotionally negligent and unreliable. And my mother pushing me to pursue a relationship with him, which just set me up. I mean, you see the parallels right there. Right. And so <laughs> despite how I felt, my mother would push me towards him, push me to call him, push me to, you know, basically essentially chase him, even though he was clearly not interested in being a father. And so as a child, that felt that didn't feel good. Right. But I wasn't allowed to listen to that voice that said, this doesn't feel good. I'm going to stop. It was this doesn't feel good, but it doesn't matter what you feel. And in fact, you got to think about his feelings. You got to think about other people's feelings. So I took that with me into adulthood. So when I would feel something that was like, this doesn't feel good, this doesn't feel good. I was well practiced in ignoring that feeling. Mm. 
And, and again, it was, to, you know, it was to my peril that, that I would ignore it. I'm not going to get what I want. Like I should just expect not to get what I want mm. and, you know, and, and to, you know, forge ahead anyway, you know, that was, was, you know, the seeds for that were planted long ago. And it sounds also like that what you want, you know, is superseded by what other people want. Uh, what other people want, other people's comfort. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, and that I think sets up, um, as you say, sets up well for understanding how you could end up with somebody like that. And then I think paralleled with what we were talking about in terms of the uh, kind of un not even unfinished, but unstarted, that's not mm -hmm. a word, but the grieving that you hadn't begun um, right. for all of the, the sort of mountain of loss in the, in the year of your divorce and, and all of these family members passing away. Well, okay. So let's, let's go the other way, shall we? Yes. <laughs> okay. So you are, um, you've had this night, you looked fabulous. Um, but, uh, your intuition kicked in and told you that something was not okay. You confront him about the lie. You get on the road the next day. Um, you end up in this conversation where, you know, he's sort of saying it's all or nothing and, and you're in or you're out and you say, I'm out. What happens next? What I hope would have happened is I got off the apps okay. again <laughs> <laughs> and recognized that, um, you know, I, I just didn't, the, the, the energy, the resources, the emotional resources I had, the time that I had was better spent elsewhere and that I would have recognized uh, perhaps with the help of, of my therapist that I also, you know, did not want to be alone. You know, the, the loneliness mm. of that, you know, of, of, I was trying to fill that void. Um, but of course that void wasn't simply, oh, I'm no longer married. And so now I'm lonely. I mean, I was lonely in my first marriage, but it conjured up all of that early childhood stuff and all of that stuff you know, around my father. Then also if I had been more honest with my friends about what was going on and had asked for help with this as well. And just, you know, being able to talk with my friends and say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling emotionally. I'm lonely. I'm scared. Also though, at that time, um, I, I think I needed a different therapist too. Okay. How come? I was working with a therapist who um, it was a lot of talking about what was happening in the moment. And, um, and I, 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 at a certain point I needed more than talk. I needed a trauma-based therapist to, you know, help me explore the, some of the roots of the trauma and, you know, um, someone that I felt comfortable being fully honest with too. Okay. I was ashamed for a really long time to tell any of the therapists that I've had over the years when I was married to my second husband, you know, just how bad things were. Can you say how bad things were? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was a very classic case of emotional abuse, uh, a lot of um, dismissiveness and defensiveness, just, you know, um, 
disregard for my feelings. He was very punishing in terms of silent treatment, you know, not even trying to talk me out of it, just deciding that, you know, that I, it was all much ado, much ado about nothing, you know, uh-huh. minimizing and diminishing, you know, my feelings. Um, he cheated twice that I'm aware of, and I'm guessing probably more times, but that I just didn't know about. And eventually things got to the point where there was an incident um, at this point, this was maybe two or three years before I left him. Um, So at that point we would have been together almost a decade and he was physically abusive. And I definitely didn't tell anybody about that. Thank you for sharing that. It's um, not easy. I'm sure to talk about Um, for us to get uh, into what your life might have looked like otherwise. I want us to get um, quite specific. So um, when you, let's get literally back to when you get off the highway um, mm-hmm. and you're back at home in Pittsburgh and you now don't have, you don't have a partner. Presumably in real life, at some point you guys moved in together one of you moved to the other city Mm-mm. no we were long distance the whole time you were long distance the whole time because he was co-parenting two children as well oh his first marriage yeah so we dated long distance for three years and then we were married long distance after that okay so you you get off the highway you get home you delete your apps you sign out of your websites you continue your work mm-hmm. okay you continuing to work. Where are the kids? Are they they with their dad? They would probably be still with their dad. Okay. I would have definitely had at least a few hours to myself. Okay. Um, you know, to to kind of cry. And um I probably had deadlines, so I probably would have started working. You know? At that time we were just starting to build a platform for what would become our co parenting book, my first ex husband and I. And so, um, you know, probably working on website content, probably um, working on the book proposal, which uh, we would need ultimately to sell the book. Um, And so it's, yeah, 2006 is, I think, when we started talking about that. Um, And I might have made some time... um, to dabble, to do a little bit of fiction writing. Fiction was always my, like, I always thought of it as my real writing. You know, everything else was work. There was a novel, a couple of novels that I had been trying to write. Let's, let's decide. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you pick up a novel? Yeah, to start to I would it? say, yeah, let's, yeah. The, the, the novel that I'm actually hoping to now get published. I've been working on it that long. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Yeah. That novel. And but you hadn't started it at this point. No, I was probably working on it at the end of 2006. Oh, so and this was, you know, this would have been December. So I also would have been getting ready for uh, my older daughter's birthday and also getting ready for the holidays. Okay, so you have the holidays Mm -hmm. with your kids. Um, You have your daughter's birthday. Does she have a December birthday? My daughter has a December birthday, too. She has a December (laughs) birthday. So her birthday, Christmas, New Year's Eve, you know, the the whole nine. And then you go, you go into, you go into the new year. How do you feel being single on New Year's? Um, probably sad, <laughs> yeah. a little scared, especially if I was avoiding the apps. Cause it's like, I'm single and I'm not doing anything about it, you know? 
And so I would have, you know, had to learn how to manage those feelings of fear and loneliness. How do you think that you do that? Um, Therapy. Yeah. Therapy. Maybe there's, there would, you know, a friend that I would have confided in, even just picking one friend to say, this is how I'm really feeling. Who's the friend? Um, at that time, it would have been a woman named Pamela, who I'm no longer okay. friends with, but she was probably my closest friend and confidant at that time. I was more honest with her than I had than I was being with anybody. And so let's say I was completely honest with her, um, mm. you know, and then that I, I think part of not being honest and the sh- and, and not being honest because of feelings of shame just compounded everything that I was feeling. So I think that being honest, being able to be honest with, with um, Pamela and um, would have let lighten that load a bit. Like, you know, she didn't, wouldn't necessarily have a, a solution, but I wouldn't feel the shame of hiding something. Again, that kind of emotional abuse really reinforces, doesn't it? That sense of shame. Yes. That sense that somehow you've done it wrong. Yes. It's the start of the new year. You're confiding in Pamela. You've got a new therapist who's helping you get a little bit deeper into some of these issues. You're off the apps. You're working on two books, your parenting book, your co-parenting book, and your novel. At this point in your real life, um, as we kind of go into 2007, was your relationship with your partner, did it escalate? It sounds like it escalated pretty quickly, just so we can get a comparison between what life is like with him and what life is like without him. Yeah, it did escalate um, pretty quickly into 2007. the, the kind of punishing behaviors and his, you know, saying and doing things that left me feeling diminished, you know, feeling like I was, you know, not adequate. Um, and being, he wasn't somebody who would, you know, like let's work through complex emotions, you know, everything was a reaction. Um, but, but very passive aggressive, you know, so it's not like he was one to yell and scream and all of that, but just, you know, as I mentioned before, the, you know, kind of the weaponized silence, the silent treatment. I don't, I'm trying to think the best way to explain it. Um, Take your time. It was it was so strange because it would be he framed our relationship as he was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was great with him. I was the only one that had, you know. You know, there there would be no problems if I didn't mention any. But mm. meanwhile, you know, what I found out much later was, you know, he was deeply insecure and also deeply resentful towards me. But right. he would we we couldn't talk about that. I was one to talk about and try and say, here's how I'm feeling, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm concerned about, and then having him just minimize and dismiss all of that. Which is just, it's so dangerous, isn't it? Because you start to believe that it's completely one-sided and that you're the source of all the problems. Well, I mean, here's the weird thing. I didn't believe that, but but I didn't leave. You know, mm. to stay and fight for years like that, it was just, you know, made no sense. You know, it's what I know now is called anxious attachment. 
you know, I yeah. know now why I did those things, but no, I mean that that's, you know, I, I keep reading about things where people will say, you know, you just suffered in silence and you didn't speak up. And it's like, no, I spoke up all the time. <laughs> and, and the deal is when you speak up and the other person gaslights you or doesn't listen to you or doesn't care about what you're saying, then you leave, you know, like that's yeah. how it should go. Yeah. And you stayed. One thing that you had said to me when we spoke earlier was that you feel like, tell me if I've got this right um, from memory, is just that you feel like you're just starting to, because you speak about this really articulately. And I, I don't know if you were able to do, the, do this when you were in the midst of it, but you said that you're, you feel like you're sort of just starting to write about this um, period of your life and about this experience and that it's taken you this long you got divorced in 2017. It's taken you this long to sort of start to process it in writing. Is that right? One of the reasons that I avoided writing about it for so long is that I knew that revisiting those feelings, like I would be really sad, <laughs> you know? So even <laughs> when I was sort of kind of skirting the issue a little bit in writing, it would wipe me out emotionally. And that's unpleasant. <laughs> and so it wasn't something that I was, you know, was like eager to do again and again. And yet over time, you know, I keep returning, you know, that it, this, this sense of something very subconscious happening for me of this unfinished business. And I really want to be finished with it. And it seems as mm -hmm. though one way that happens is to kind of write my way through it. Yeah no matter how long it takes, right? Because that's one other thing we were discussing is yeah. that there's the, 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 the long tail of grief is yes. sort of, you can't really, you can't control how long it takes. You can just sort of, I don't know what, hang out with it for as long as it wants to be there. And as you say, write through it or talk through it. Yeah. So where, uh, let's, let's, let's go back to 2007 because you're not in your unlived life. You're just not experiencing this. And it's a, it's a kind of a funny one just to, um, I think, you know, we have to imagine you into a space where you're just, where there's an absence of something. There's an absence of this oppressive presence. There's an absence mm -hmm. of this gaslighting. You're just existing and you're feeling sad, but you've got a good therapist and you've got a good friend mm -hmm. um, and you're parenting and you're holding a lot with that parenting mm -hmm. and you're working and you're clearly holding a lot with that working. Um, does anything, as we move through 2007, does anything feel different? Does anything feel like it opens up? I wonder if, my novel that I had been working on, if it would have changed. Interesting. You know, say more. Um, because I think I, you know, that novel was definitely reflective of me coming out of my first marriage. Okay. Nothing from my second relationship, um, you know, was really getting into that sort of fictional world of, of that character and that experience. But I wonder if part of being more honest um, would have involved some other insights or interest. And I got stuck on that novel. The, one of the reasons I didn't, you know, I still haven't finished it is because there was really no story there and I had lost interest in the character. Um, but I wasn't a strong enough writer to realize that. And it had legs and it had potential. And I actually wrote about two thirds of it, but it was just really lacking 
uh, a, a compelling story. And I, mm. over time, you know, I lost interest in it. So I'm thinking that perhaps sitting with my honest, real feelings, feeling lonely, feeling scared, feeling all the things rather than trying to distract myself from them. I wonder if, you know, the kind of writing, whether it was through essays or in the fiction, if some of that um, exploration, if I would have explored some of that or had a character explore some of that um, on the page. Which do you think? Do you think it was in the novel with a character in the novel or do you think it's in nonfiction or? For so long, I had been too afraid to write truth about my relationships, both of them. And so, mm. you know, that would have been a big leap to say, you know, to write something where either I or a woman um, contemplates being lonely. Because, you know, like there's so much shame around loneliness, especially for women, because it speaks to, you know, the way the culture interprets it as some kind of undesirability, which is like the worst thing you can be in this culture is, you know, not desirable as a woman. That's the lie. Why is that? Why do we why why is why has that lie happened? Because, you know, our ultimate, you know, um, our highest aim is supposed to be for heterosexual marriage. Yeah. You know, yeah. and being chosen. Ugh. And so anything less than that, you know, we're supposed to feel lacking. I, I don't want to be annoying and press on whether it's essay or the novel, <laughs> but what I basically what I want to know is sort of what comes of that writing, essentially, because it feels like that kind of take carries us forward a little bit. Right. So Well, you know, I Rome isn't built in a day, so I'm gonna say that I probably would have fictionalized it because it would have been yeah. a lot to, exp- I would have felt very exposed and not in a therapeutic way. I was not at that time strong enough or, you know, emotionally um, stable enough to put my business out there like that, you know. That's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, maybe, but also maybe you were smart enough to know that, that you weren't ready to be yeah. that exposed. I I feel like the the current moment where we're all very encouraged to say all of our private feelings on the internet mm-hmm. um and that that is viewed as a sign of strength and very often it is because it's it's the opposite of the shame right, right? but i don't know if you feel like this sometimes i feel like it's kind of tipping in a in the opposite direction in a way that's a bit much sometimes it's sort of almost commodifying some of those feelings a bit. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I feel like what you're describing is really good balance it yeah. just wasn't the time for you to be putting everything out yeah. there yeah. Okay, so you fictionalize this this uh truth about loneliness. You use what you're experiencing to to move your your novel forward in that sense. Does it change the novel? I think it definitely changes the novel. I think it would deepen the novel and in fact, it probably would change even the subject matter <laughs> of of the novel because I, I a pattern that I've seen in my life is that I have typically felt I'm going to use the word safest because I think it is a safety emotional safety thing for me. I felt safest writing about things after the fact, like way 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 after the fact, right? And so yeah. the the novel as I was writing it then reflected my first marriage which I had left. And you felt that you were at a safe enough distance from that to write about it at that right. point. Right. 
the character was a pastor's wife. I am not a pastor's wife, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she gets um, she has this anonymous blog and and she gets exposed as the person behind the blog. And there's this whole scandal. Um, So it was a departure, a real departure from my life. But the core of of what was going on with her was something I could relate to, which is you know, having married somebody for all of the wrong reasons, for the respectability and the security, and then realizing, you know, there's nothing here, you know, and do I want to hold on to all of the perks that come with marriage and all of the social capital, or do I want to like live and be true to myself? So that was you know, a a question that had been essential for me, but I'd already answered that question, you know? And so writing Mm. this, that story was pretty safe for me emotionally, you know, and, and ultimately I knew that in that story, she was going to leave the marriage. And so then she would have found herself at the same crossroads I did, which is, you know, do you, you know, do you jump right back into dating? You know, in the end, she, she does decide to, to leave. And so, I don't know if I would have pursued that same story or started a story where the main character is at the starts in the beginning of the, of the novel is at the same crossroads I was at emotionally and drawing on that. Or if I would have continued my pattern of, nope, I can't write it in real time. (laughs) You know, I got to write it when I'm on the other side of it. (laughs) Should we, um, should we decide? What do you think? Um, Let me, let me think about 2007, me. <laughs> um, but new 2007. Yeah, yeah, the, the 2.0. Unencumbered. <laughs> Tisha 2.0. Yes. Um, no, I, I just, I think that I want to still, I want to say that in, in this 2.0 version that I was, that I just, I took my time. I think to write, to try and write that while I was going through it was, would not have been me being gentle with myself. And I think I needed more gentleness at that time. Hopefully it would have gotten better because that story needed a lot of work. <laughs> well, it sounds like it, it gets better. It gets better because ultimately you, you do have this character interrogating her own loneliness. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's that as opposed to a whole new sure, starting point. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's interesting the thing you were saying about safety and writing and how this was safe because you knew the answer to the questions. Um, do you feel like I don't think it's a value judgment, mm-hmm. but presumably there's another another kind of writing where you don't know the answers to the mm-hmm. questions and you're writing your way through that. Yeah. You know, I, I have an essay coming out in a collection that's um, called Bigger Than Bravery, and it's um, Black writers writing on life in the pandemic, and mm. um, which was an incredibly lonely time for me and still continues to be. But especially, you know, the time when we were, you know, more uh, sheltered in place. And yeah. I remember thinking... You know, I had started taking some notes on this and uh, for an essay, and I was like, I can never publish this essay ever, ever, ever. And then I was invited to submit an essay <laughs> to this anthology, <laughs> and it was like I got the bones of the perfect essay for this right here. And I was like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna write it. And so, you know, pandemic's not over. My loneliness is, you know, is is still with me. 
Um, but I wrote it anyway. I, I wrote a satirical horror story <laughs> about Did that. you? Yeah. It's called Fuckboy Museum. I love it already. I must have this short story. It's also going to be in an anthology um, called Peach Pit. And it's a um, stories um, about emotionally gray. I'm sorry, morally gray women. Oh. Right? <laughs> oh. I love this. Why is it called Peach Pit? I don't know. I probably should know that, but uh That makes me there was there's what's the TV show where the Peach Pit was the the um you know from the 90s where the Peach Pit was like the cafe. Oh, was it 90210? Or one of I those I think it was 90210. Okay. I love that Morally Gray. That's wonderful. Yeah. I had a lot of fun writing that one. So that was an experience of writing through deep emotions for me not particularly even optimistic <laughs> but mm. the story itself um feels like a victory because i really love the story you think that in two, the 2007 you disha 2.0 you do attempt to sort of tackle the idea or tackle your loneliness in fiction mm -hmm. um how is your actual loneliness doing as we move through this time let's say if you're if you're doing this in the novel maybe we're kind of 2007 yeah. 2008 I wonder if I would have decided at that point to travel. Probably, I, it, I, I don't think I would have done it alone. Um, okay. But I, there's a, a, in in Mexico, San Miguel de Allende, I went there um, some years later. Let's say I went there that, you know, at that time. And I went with, uh, again, I would go with some other writers and we rent this beautiful house and the experience was just, it was really one of renewal. It went in 2016 twice, the year before I left my ex. And, mm. and that was the beginning of the end. I liked who I was in San Miguel. I liked how I felt. And, mm. and so it, when I came back and, you know, things were really bad with, with me and, and my ex, um, San Miguel had like shine it shone a light on oh I remember I used to feel this good before you know can you say what it was that felt so good or felt so much more like you um you know I, well while I was there like there was no conflict I wasn't constantly feeling wanting wanting you know feeling like I you know was deprived in San Miguel um you know, everything was fresh and beautiful and I got to create my days and I got to determine, you know, um, how I spent my time. And there were surprises, you know, um, I think that was something that um, I remember ke being keenly aware of in that marriage, like every day is the same. And I remember mm. my saddest times when I was married, were it would be at night because I think there was a part of me that got up every day and thought that somehow magically this day was going to be different. And I held out that hope. But then by the end of the day, I couldn't, you know, at night I couldn't deny like, you know, here was another day that kind of ended the same way. Whereas when I was in Mexico, um, you know, literally walking down the street, <laughs> you know, was everything. It was always something new. I just love that idea of the sort of necessity of surprise. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I just, I said this to someone recently that that's my new goal in life to be surprised in a good way to live, work, and be partnered in ways that bring wonderful surprises. So yes, in 2007, I travel with writer friends and go to San Miguel and yeah. Yeah. And you have that similar experience? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, which means you get that sense of delight and surprise a little bit sooner. I just love, I love the idea. I think especially in a time when it feels like, I don't know if it always feels like this, but I I think I certainly grew up feeling like, like you had to kind of nail the really big things and that happiness was about kind of the mass, the mega successes, the publishing Mm -hmm. of the book or the, Mm -hmm. you know, the getting of the big job or the finding the right partner or all those things. And I just, just, you know, the idea of just being open to little delights mm-hmm. is so, it's so much more manageable, isn't it? Right. It's, just, right. it's sort of 2007. I feel like 2007, maybe starting 2008, you're writing your novel. Do you finish your novel? Um, let's see. So 2007. Yeah. Maybe in 2008, the, you know, the draft <clears throat> of the novel is done. And so then it okay. becomes, you know, going and going to different conferences and, and doing, you know, um, and, and workshopping workshop experiences and, um, continuing to travel, I think, you know, as opposed to, you know, travel being a vacation, being this like one time a year, but just recognizing that travel and, you know, resetting, you know, resetting Uh. is something that's really important. And that I think for me, I do have to leave home to reset. I don't have to go to Mexico, but leaving home, being near water and being near nature um, are all resets for me. And so being more intentional about that um, so that, you know, my, that it, you know, my life isn't just sort of like, oh, you know, I'm writing and I'm like waiting to meet a man. Right. You know, and, and maybe I start another book or maybe I start writing, you know, the short stories and things. Let's decide what okay. you do. Uh, no, you know what? So those years were big co-parenting 101 years. Like that was building that brand. And so um, maybe during that time. Um, You've just got a lot more internal space, yeah. I think, right? There's there's no oppressive male figure right and the opposite you've you've gone in the opposite direction you're you're more expansive let's let's talk for a second about how you're feeling and then we'll see if we can get something so i think in the in that kind of environment i the 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 lessons that came out of therapy for me i think i would have gotten to them sooner you know i think i would have gotten to my so the last two therapists I've had have been the best that i've had um i think i would have gotten to the one that was not the current one, but the one before that, I would have gotten to her sooner. And she was the person who said, you know, you're going to repeat this pattern with men and not being, you know, the, and, and not having the kinds of relationships that you want and that you deserve until you work through what's going on with you. And she said, and I really believe that has to do with your father. And she said, I don't know of a book about you know, fatherless daughters. She's like, but if you can find one, she said, I think that'll be helpful to you. And so um, I didn't do this until 2017, but for our purposes, you know, I do it, you know, earlier. There are a lot of books about fatherless daughters, but 
many, if not most of them are from a Christian perspective, which was not helpful to me. It was like, oh, so you're you know, earthly father wasn't who you needed him to be, but you got a heavenly father. And it's like, no, ah. uh, no, no, no. Um, and then, or were you, can I just mm-hmm. ask, did you grow up with a religious background? Cause obviously we've got pastors and church Yo, ladies yeah, I, all over your fiction. I was in church until I, until my 2005, I left the church when I, all of those deaths happened. Yeah. So okay. I always, wow. I don't, didn't remember a time I wasn't in church. And so um, the other perspective that didn't work was not, you know, who you had, who you needed him to be. You have this, you know, uh, this troubled relationship. Here's a book on how the two of you can rebuild. Well, my father was dead. Couldn't rebuild with somebody who's not there. So I went through so many books, like I'm searching and searching. And then there was finally one book called The Fatherless Daughter Project, and it was written by two researchers and they themselves were women who were fatherless daughters and they interviewed fatherless daughters. And they just sort of did this profile of like, here's what all of these women from, you know, different backgrounds and from different kinds of fatherless experiences. Like maybe he was a deadbeat dad or he was a drug addict or he was abusive or he died. You know, there are lots of ways to be fatherless. You can have a father in the home and still he be emotionally absent. So they, you know, interviewed women from all of these different experiences and um, found some common threads, you know, um, and that, you know, breakups are harder for you if you're fatherless, what that father wound and father hole looks like. And then what was most helpful to me in the book was the section on partnering and what it's like to try and be in relationships with men if you've experienced fatherlessness and what Mm. you need from your partners. I'd love to have gotten to that book sooner because this was the book that along with San Miguel convinced me I had to leave my marriage immediately. Mm. Immediately. Because it illuminated for you what you were doing. You could sort of see. I could see the pattern that they were saying, you know, this is, you know, it's not just me being, you know, sensitive. It's not just me being emotional. I mean, and it's not like it was a revelation to me that, you know, because we kind of flippantly talk about women having daddy issues or whatever. But it really got (laughs) down to the brain science of why we can't just partner with just anybody, (laughs) you know, and what we need in our partnerships and um, but also how we have to do our own healing work as well. And when I told my then husband that I was divorcing him, I divorced him. I, you know, I broke up with him by email, by the way. And first it was. <laughs> I like it because it started on email. Yeah. So I like that with the haikus on the email exactly. and that it ended in email. Well done. And so first Very I just, poetic. you know, sent him all my notes from this book with, you know, kind of like a little terse email, like I'm done. And here's why. In particular, a quote from one man who was partnered with a woman who was fatherless. And he said that there were a couple of things that helped him that he he came to realize one, that what happened to his partner, you know, being abandoned by her father, the way she was, was not her fault. Um, mm. And the second thing was that um, she is responsible for the healing work that needs to be done so that she can show up for herself and show up for her partner. And then he said, but everything is easier if you have support. Mm. And it took me back to a conversation I had had with my um, then husband some years back where I was telling him, I said, you know, I realize I'm still grieving 
you know, the loss of, of my family in 2005, you know, my mother and my father and my grandmother, I have never really dealt, stopped long enough to deal with that grief. I said, and then the way that you treat me just compounds, you know, how badly I feel. And he was like, you know, your grief doesn't have anything to do with me. And I knew, and again, that intuition, like immediately I knew that that was wrong and that was unkind, but you know, it, it wasn't enough for me to leave. But when I read it in the book where this man was like, yeah, it's her work to do, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be supportive. Like, so what I was asking of him was not unreasonable, which I knew, yeah. but it was just validating. So yeah. So That's I would have read that book sooner. Okay. And so at some point, you know, I would have decided that I might make another foray, foray into trying to date, but with this kind of blueprint around, you know, these, the red flags. I've joked that I see the red flags and then make like a damn cape out of that shit and rock it, you know? <laughs> so, but seeing the red flags and walking away. I love this sort of new you going into, going back into dating land with, Without your red flag cape. Yeah. <laughs> are you going back to the apps? Are you gonna are you going out on the town? What are you doing? All of it? Dating in Pittsburgh is like hell. <laughs> so okay. I definitely was probably back on the apps for sure. It would probably feel a lot like it does now, which is really quiet <laughs> because once you don't talk to people you know, who show you a red flag and often those red flags are in the fucking profile or in the first message. Oh my God. Can you give, can you give like a, like a, like a whistle stop tour through the profile oh, red flags? God. Okay. You know, <laughs> so I wrote this essay called 13 guys you meet on a dating app where I did exactly that. Some of the things, you know, instant intimacy and familiarity. Don't call me sweetheart. Don't call me baby. Don't call, you know, mm. just say hello. And then, um, you know, men who can't hold a conversation. And yeah. so it's just an instant, you know, endless round of good morning, beautiful over and over and over and over again. Then I also recently learned this uh, term called breadcrumbing. What is that? Where they show interest in little bits and pieces, never commit to pl a plan or asking you out, showing up on even texting inconsistently because what they really want is just the attention there's interest but it never goes anywhere but they like to continue talking to you via text so just ends up wasting your time yes isn't it? it's exhausting yes exactly and so that's why i'm very swift in either not responding at all or cutting off communication as soon as i see that and so i'd like to think that that's what I would have started doing when I returned to the apps. And so therefore, <laughs> I would not, have, you know, I probably would have gone a long time without actually meeting anyone or dating, which is like how things are right now. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that we can figure out how long you go? Um, I'm going to say I would probably go about two years because it okay. it's a wasteland. Have you um, have you finished the novel yet? Are you still going with that? The co-parenting book has just sold. I would have a novel for my agent ready for her to then start pitching that. And so 
you know, in an ideal world, uh, you know, the co-parenting book comes out in 2013 and the novel comes out in 2014. Okay. And what happens on the apps? What happens after this, this period of, of quiet? Uh, I meet someone. But steadiness. You <laughs> meet, meet somebody. Someone. Who do you meet? Can we think of who he is? Oh, okay. So he's very smart. Okay. Um, and he's funny. And he has a, a stable job that he likes. And, um, nice. and he's fundamentally secure and emotionally secure. So he's not threatened by me. Um, and we genu- genuinely like each other. Which shouldn't what be like, I know, right? But yeah, we actually like each other such, such that like, even if we weren't involved romantically, like somebody who would like still be a friend, even if the like romance part didn't work out. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um. So do you, um, you, we passed instant messenger now. We're in like text message. Land, yeah. So texting, we talk on the phone. So okay. having phone conversations. Yes. Is he in Pittsburgh? Yes, since I get to decide. Yes. Hooray. <laughs> local. We've got a local. <laughs> We've got a local. It feels like it wins everything. It trumps even the stable job and the everything. We date, but we also travel together. We're traveling, we're dating, we're, you know, nobody's in a rush to get married, if ever, you know. So. Has he been married before? I think it would be cool if he's been married before and he's also got children of his own. He can even be a little older than me. That would be perfectly fine, too. I like that. Yeah. Older than you is cool. Maybe that's even for the best. <laughs> a little the more mature, mature a little yeah, more the grounded. Maturity. The maturity. Lived a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are you're traveling. Um, you're dating. The kids, at some point, you introduce the kids. They get along? Uh, yes. And, but, but gradual, not putting any pressure on that, you know, that we're not necessarily having to blend. If anything, for a long time, we probably, uh, have our schedules aligned so that, um, you know, we don't, neither of us has our kids at the same time and vice versa. You guys are just, it's not in a rush. You're not forcing any connections between the children. Um, and presumably, if we move forward in time a little bit, uh, you're saying the book comes out in 2014. Mm-hmm. How's that go? How's it received? So it's not received like church ladies, which nothing okay. has been received like, like that's a lot. Um, but, you know, it's it's well received. Um, and in the interim years, like while, you know, but years between when it sold and when it published, I continued writing. I would like to think that, um, I still, I was, I would still be writing short stories as well as a next novel. Um, I, I think my, my, my multitasking tendency would still be there. (laughs) So, so, so what happens next? What happens with your relationship? You, your, you've, your books have come out, you're writing loads He's super happy still in his stable older man job. Yeah. Yep. And we're just, it's comfortable, you know, that there's not a rush, like I said, to marry or live together or anything like that. Um, But that we, 
can both have our own spaces, but we can also spend a lot of time together and traveling together. And it just feels good. Mm. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and also at this time, because uh, I'm not giving up church ladies, I would have started working on the stories that become church ladies. Don't you dare give up church ladies. Church ladies is like, it's just unbelievable. Don't, don't leave it. What, um, what led to you writing church ladies? What's the sort of background to that? You know, while I was working on this novel, um, I started just writing short stories, you know, I'll get an idea or there was a call for submission or some sort of writing prompt. I mean, it depends on the story. They all start at different ways, but, um, my agent for the co-parenting book, you know, knew that I was working on this novel, knew that I was stalled on it. And, um, and so she had heard me read, um, some of the stories at events and cause she's local here in Pittsburgh. And she told me once she was like, you know, while you're on hiatus from the novel, maybe you could get intentional about these church lady stories. She called them that first and build a collection around this theme you know, around the theme of Black women, sex, and the Black church. And that felt so much more doable than finishing this Mm. novel that I was just so stuck on and had been stuck on for so long. And so I just got really focused on writing the stories. Okay. We're starting to catch up in time here, which is always a fun moment. So we're in 2017. You're writing Church Ladies. Fable Man is happy. You guys still happy? Like still not rushing into living together or marriage? Um, or you're just keeping it, keeping it chill. You know what I think we might decide to do, um, rather than move in together, because with kids especially, that's just messy. I think yeah. we would come to a kind of a crossroads moment in our relationship and decide, like, do we want to? continue being exclusive or date other people because in this scenario it seemed like I met him and we just started dating and it was exclusive all along at least that's how I imagined it but Mm. what I have never had the experience of is like dating multiple people and have it go well and then deciding hey I think I want to be exclusive with this person definitely the question of open relationship like that's a possibility that either before settling down with this one person or somewhere along the way, we might decide, you know, do we want to open this relationship up and what might that look like? Okay. So you do that. Yeah. And, and what does that look like? So I get my, um, I get my dream of like just dating a bunch of people. Cause you know, again, I, there's still this sense that I've, I have that I've missed out on something because I was with some, the same person from 18 till about 35. And so I just never had what I have probably romanticized in my mind of like an active, exciting dating life where, you know, I'm dating more than one person and meeting multiple people that I enjoy. Um, but it's been so hard to even just meet one person, you know, that uh, I, you know, I'd love to imagine that either before I met the person, uh, you know, that I'm spending most of my time with before or after that I do have other options and, and do get to, you know, experience more people. Right. I think that sounds wonderful. And yep. that just carries on for a bit. Yep. 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 
And does the does stable older guy remain your kind of primary relationship? Yeah, or I uh, still have yeah. that primary relationship. You're still writing. Mm-hmm. You're dating openly mm-hmm. and delightfully. Yes. There's a lot of delight. There's a lot of surprise and surprise delight, and I delight. Think, in that. <laughs> That's the theme. <laughs> I'm thinking about the discomfort that you had to lean into when you got off the highway and had ended mm-hmm. this, you know, fledgling relationship with this guy. Um, and I'm, and which was predominantly around loneliness and feeling your feelings. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I feel like you've done is you've felt them really deeply yes. and you've lived in that loneliness for a long time. And, and that also what you were in was this really kind of binary kind of locked in one-on-one relationship with somebody yeah. where there was no space for anything. Right. And what you've, you've done is you've created this like variety and interest and, and, and girlfriends and travel mm-hmm. and more writing, you know, and then the, and then the men and that the men have kind of proliferated in this really delightful, but like healthy and respectful yes. way. And it just, it just feels really um, abundant in this really nice, in this really nice way. And it, I feel like, um, it feels like it feels like that's probably what your your real life is starting to feel like now that you're kind of coming out the other side of this. Yeah, I, just, I hope I hope it's felt good to to do the journey. It has. Like I've got excited about this dating life that I don't have, but <laughs> glad in this I think alternative I, alternate universe. That... I think everybody wants your alternative dating universe, and and now everyone's we're now we're all really well armed because we have all of the rules. And I'm going to go hunt down that essay on the thirteen things. Oh yeah, it's on. Um, it, Roxanne Gay had a magazine called gay magazine for a while it was published on medium um okay. but if you just google 13 guys you meet on a dating app and put my name at the end it'll probably pop right up is there anything is there anything that sort of surprised or unnerved you or anything about it or does it all feel pretty um pretty good it was very surprising to you know that i talked about the fear and the loneliness just because it's mm. the thing that I never have wanted to talk about and only recently, you know, have gotten, you know, comfortable talking about it. But to to sort of take it to its logical conclusion, like what if I had, you know, sat with those things all along, you know, what if? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. Yeah. And thank you. I'm very grateful to you for, for sitting with, it, with me. Thank appreciate you. It. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate the experience. keep thinking about the image Disha described early on in our conversation, that photo that was taken of her and her now ex-husband on their second date at the gala. The perfect image of the perfect happy couple, glamorous, shiny, and full of rhinestone sparkle. The shifts in Disha's path were the opposite of that photo. They were subtle, quiet, and mostly internal, and I think that's what I liked most about them. As we discussed early on, instead of imagining something that might have been, for Disha, we had to imagine something that hadn't been. We had to imagine absence. And what I love is that for a very long time, Disha was brave enough not to try to fill the space, not to compensate for the absence of her second husband with another person or even another writing project. Instead, she sat with her loneliness and she sat with her shame. She got on with her work, but she addressed her feelings in therapy and writing and with friends. She even knew that this new version of herself would be kinder towards herself in terms of what she considered to be progress. 
She never rushed her to make giant leaps in her writing or get back into the world of dating faster than she needed to. She just slowly reoriented herself, step by step, towards a more authentic, empathetic life. No rhinestones and galas and smiles for the camera, but space, variety, and a clear love of life, all of which is a much more valuable kind of sparkle. <laughs> 